The Principles of Geology, Chapter 14, Part 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell Flood at Tivoli, 1826 I shall conclude with one more example, derived from a land of classic recollections, the ancient Tiber, and which, like all the other inundations above alluded to, occurred within the present century. The younger Pliny, it will be remembered, describes a flood on the Aeneo, which destroyed woods, rocks, and houses, with the most sumptuous villas and works of art. For four or five centuries consecutively, this headlong stream, as Horace truly called it, has often remained within its bounds, and then, after so long an interval of rest, has at different periods inundated its banks again and widened its channel. The last of these catastrophes happened 15th of November, 1826, after heavy rains, such as produced the floods before alluded to in Scotland. The waters appear also to have been impeded by an artificial dike, by which they were separated into two parts, a short distance above Tivoli. They broke through this dike, and leaving the left trench dry, precipitated themselves with their whole weight on the right side. Here they undermined, in the course of a few hours, a high cliff, and widened the river's channel about fifteen paces. On this height stood the church of St. Lucia, and about thirty-six houses of the town of Tivoli, which were all carried away, presenting as they sank into the roaring flood a terrific scene of destruction to the spectators on the opposite bank. As the foundations were gradually removed, each building, some of them edifices of considerable height, was first traversed with numerous rents, which soon widened into large fissures, until at length the roofs fell in with a crash, and then the walls sunk into the river and were hurled down the cataract below. The destroying agency of the flood came within two hundred yards of the precipice on which the beautiful Temple of Vesta stands. But fortunately, this precious relic of antiquity was spared, while the wreck of modern structures was hurled down the abyss. Vesta, it will be remembered, in the heathen mythology, personified the stability of the earth, and when the Samian astronomer Aristarchus first taught that the earth revolved on its axis and round the sun, he was publicly accused of impiety, quote, for removing the everlasting Vesta from her place, end quote. Playfair observed that when Hutton ascribed instability to the earth's surface and represented the continents which we inhabit as the theater of incessant change and movement, his antagonists, who regarded them as unalterable, assailed him in a similar manner with accusations founded on religious prejudices. We might appeal to the excavating power of the Aeneo as corroborative of one of the most controverted parts of the Huttonian theory, and if the days of omens had not gone by, the geologists 
who now worshipped Vesta, might regard the late catastrophe as portentous. We may, at least, recommend the modern votaries of the goddess to lose no time in making a pilgrimage to her shrine, for the next flood may not respect the temple. Excavation of Rocks by Running Water The rapidity with which even the smallest streams hollow out deep channels in soft and destructible soils is remarkably exemplified in volcanic countries, where the sand and half-consolidated tufts opposed by a slight resistance to the torrents which descend the mountainside. After the heavy rains which followed the eruption of Vesuvius in 1824, the water flowing from the Atrio de Cavallo cut in three days a new chasm through strata of tough and ejected volcanic matter to the depth of 25 feet. I found the old mule road in 1828 intersected by this new ravine. The gradual erosion of deep chasms through some of the hardest rocks by the constant passage of running water, charged with foreign matter, is another phenomenon of which striking examples may be adduced. Illustrations of this excavating power are presented by many valleys in central France where the channels of rivers have been barred up by solid currents of lava, through which the streams have re-excavated a passage to the depth of from 20 to 70 feet and upwards, and often of great width. In these cases, there are decisive proofs that neither the sea, nor any denuding wave or extraordinary body of water has passed over the spot since the melted lava was consolidated. Every hypothesis of the intervention of sudden and violent agency is entirely excluded, because the cones of loose scoriae, out of which the lavas flowed, are oftentimes at no great elevation above the rivers, and have remained undisturbed during the whole period which has been sufficient for the hollowing out of such enormous ravines. Recent Excavation by the Semeto but I shall at present confine myself to examples derived from events which have happened since the time of history. At the western base of Etna, a current of lava, figure 16, descending from near the summit of the great volcano, has flowed to the distance of five or six miles and then reached the alluvial plain of the Sumeto, the largest of the Sicilian rivers, which skirts the base of Etna and falls into the sea a few miles south of Catania. The lava entered the river about three miles above the town of Aderno, and not only occupied its channel for some distance, but, crossing to the opposite side of the valley, accumulated there in a rocky mass. Gamalero gives the year 1603 as the date of the eruption. The appearance of the current clearly proves that it is one of the most modern of those of Etna, for it has not been covered or crossed by subsequent streams or ejections, and the olives which have been planted on its surface were all of small size when I examined the spot in 1828, yet they were older than the natural wood on the same lava. 
In the course, therefore, of about two centuries, the cemento had eroded a passage from fifty to several hundred feet wide, and in some parts from forty to fifty feet deep. The portion of lava cut through is in no part porous or scoriaceous, but consists of a compact, homogeneous mass of hard blue rock, somewhat inferior in weight to ordinary basalt, and containing crystals of olivine and glassy felspar. The general declivity of this part of the bed of the cemento is not considerable, but in consequence of the unequal waste of the lava, two waterfalls occur at Passo Manzanelli, each about six feet in height. Here the chasm, B, figure 16, is about 40 feet deep and only 50 broad. The sand and pebbles in the riverbed consist chiefly of a brown quartzose sandstone derived from the upper country, but the materials of the volcanic rock itself must have greatly assisted the attrition. This river, like the Caltabiano, on the eastern side of Etna, has not yet cut down to the ancient bed of which it was dispossessed, and of which the probable position is indicated in the annexed diagram. See figure 16. On entering the narrow ravine, where the water foams down the two cataracts, we are entirely shut out from all view of the surrounding country, and a geologist who is accustomed to associate the characteristic features of the landscape with the relative age of certain rocks can scarcely dissuade himself from the belief that he is contemplating a scene in some rocky gorge of a primary district. The external forms of the hard blue lava are as massive as any of the most ancient trap rocks of Scotland. The solid surface is in some parts smooth and almost polished by attrition, and covered in others with a white lichen, which imparts to it an air of extreme antiquity, so as greatly to heighten the delusion. But the moment we reascend the cliff, the spell is broken, for we scarcely recede a few paces before the ravine and river disappear, and we stand on the black and rugged surface of a vast current of lava which seems unbroken, and which we can trace up nearly to the distant summit of that majestic cone which Pindar called the Pillar of Heaven, and which still continues to send forth a fleecy wreath of vapor, reminding us that its fires are not extinct, and that it may again give out a rocky stream, wherein other scenes like that now described may present themselves to future observers. Falls of Niagara The Falls of Niagara afford a magnificent example of the progressive excavation of a deep valley in solid rock. That river flows over a flat tableland, in a depression of which Lake Erie is situated. Where it issues from the lake, it is clearly a mile in width and 330 feet above Lake Ontario, which is about 30 miles distant. For the first 15 miles below Lake Erie, the surrounding country, comprising Upper Canada on the west and the state of New York on the east, is almost on a level with its banks, and nowhere more than 30 or 40 feet above them.
see figure 17. The river being occasionally interspersed with low wooded islands, and having sometimes a width of three miles, glides along at first with a clear, smooth, and tranquil current, falling only fifteen feet in as many miles, and in this part of its course resembling an arm of Lake Erie. But its character is afterwards entirely changed on approaching the rapids, where it begins to rush and foam over a rocky and uneven limestone bottom for the space of nearly a mile, till at length it is thrown down perpendicularly 160 feet at the falls. Here the river is divided into two sheets of water by an island, the largest cataract being more than a third of a mile broad, the smaller one having a breadth of 600 feet. When the water has precipitated itself into an unfathomable pool, it rushes with great velocity down the sloping bottom of a narrow chasm for a distance of seven miles. This ravine varies from 200 to 400 yards in width from cliff to cliff, contrasting therefore strongly in its breadth with that of the river above. Its depth is from 200 to 300 feet, and it intersects for about seven miles the table land before described, which terminates suddenly at Queenstown in an escarpment or long line of inland cliff facing northwards toward Lake Ontario. The Niagara, on reaching the escarpment and issuing from the gorge, enters the flat country, which is so nearly on a level with Lake Ontario that there is only a fall of about four feet in the seven additional miles which intervene between Queenstown and the shores of that lake. It has long been the popular belief that the Niagara once flowed in a shallow valley across the whole platform, from the present site of the falls to the escarpment called the Queenstown Heights, where it is supposed that the cataract was first situated, and that the river has been slowly eating its way backwards through the rocks for the distance of seven miles. This hypothesis naturally suggests itself to every observer, who sees the narrowness of the gorge at its termination, and throughout its whole course, as far up as the falls, above which point the river expands as before stated. The boundary cliffs of the ravine are usually perpendicular, and in many places undermined on one side by the impetuous stream. The uppermost rock of the tableland at the falls consists of hard limestone, a member of the Silurian series, about 90 feet thick, beneath which lie soft shales of equal thickness, continually undermined by the action of the spray, which rises from the pool into which so large a body of water is projected, and is driven violently by gusts of wind against the base of the precipice. In consequence of this action, and that of frost, the shale disintegrates and crumbles away, and portions of the incumbent rock overhang forty feet, and often when unsupported, tumble down, so that the falls do not remain absolutely stationary at the same spot, even for half a century. Accounts have come down to us from the earliest period of observation of the frequent destruction of these rocks, and the sudden descent 
of huge fragments in 1818 and 1828 are said to have shaken the adjacent country like an earthquake. The earliest travelers, Hennepin and Kalm, who in 1678 and 1751 visited the falls and published views of them, attest the fact that the rocks have been suffering from dilapidation for more than a century and a half, and that some slight changes, even in the scenery of the cataract, have been brought about within that time. The idea, therefore, of perpetual and progressive waste is constantly present to the mind of every beholder, and as that part of the chasm which has been the work of the last hundred and fifty years resembles precisely in depth, width, and character, the rest of the gorge which extends seven miles below, it is most natural to infer that the entire ravine has been hollowed out in the same manner by the recession of the cataract. It must at least be conceded that the river supplies an adequate cause for executing the whole task thus assigned to it providing we grant sufficient time for its completion. As this part of the country was a wilderness till near the end of the last century, we can obtain no accurate data for estimating the exact rate at which the cataract has been receding. Mr. Bakewell, son of the eminent geologist of that name, who visited the Niagara in 1829, made the first attempt to calculate from the observations of one who had lived forty years at the falls, and who had been the first settler there, that the cataract had during that period gone back about a yard annually. But after the most careful inquiries, which I was able to make during my visit to the spot in 1841-2, I came to the conclusion that the average of one foot a year would be a much more probable conjecture. In that case, it would have required 35,000 years for the retreat of the falls from the escarpment of Queenstown to their present site. It seems by no means improbable that such a result would be no exaggeration of the truth, although we cannot assume that the retrograde movement has been uniform. An examination of the geological structure of the district, as laid open in the ravine, shows that at every step in the process of excavation, the height of the precipice, the hardness of the materials at its base, and the quantity of fallen matter to be removed must have varied. At some points it may have receded much faster than at present, but in general its progress was probably slower, because the cataract, when it began to recede, must have had nearly twice its present height. From observations made by me in 1841, when I had the advantage of being accompanied by Mr. Hall, state geologist of New York, and in 1842, when I re-examined the Niagara district, I obtained geological evidence of the former existence of an old riverbed, which, I have no doubt, indicates the original channel through which the waters once flowed from the falls to Queenstown, at the height of nearly 300 feet above the bottom of the present gorge. The geological monuments alluded to consist of patches of sand and gravel 40 feet thick, 
containing fluviatile shells of the genera Unio, Cyclus, Melania, etc., such as now inhabit the waters of the Niagara above the falls. The identity of the fossil species with the recent is unquestionable, and these freshwater deposits occur at the edge of the cliffs bounding the ravine, so that they prove the former extension of an elevated shallow valley four miles below the falls, a distinct prolongation of that now occupied by the Niagara, in the elevated region intervening between Lake Erie and the falls. Whatever theory be framed for the hollowing out of the ravine further down, or for the three miles which intervene between the Whirlpool and Queenstown, it will always be necessary to suppose the former existence of a barrier of rock, not of loose and destructive materials, such as those composing the drift in this district, somewhere immediately below the whirlpool. By that barrier, the waters were held back for ages, when the fluviatile deposit, 40 feet in thickness, and 250 feet above the present channel of the river, originated. If we are led by this evidence to admit that the cataract has cut back its way for four miles, we can have little hesitation in referring the excavation of the remaining three miles below to a like agency, the shape of the chasm being precisely similar. There have been many speculations respecting the future recession of the falls and the deluge that might be occasioned by the sudden escape of the waters of Lake Erie, if the ravine should ever be prolonged 16 miles backwards. But a more accurate knowledge of the geological succession of the rocks brought to light by the state survey has satisfied every geologist that the falls would diminish gradually in height before they traveled back two miles, and in consequence of a gentle dip of the strata to the south, the massive limestone, now at the top, would then be at their base, and would retard and perhaps put an effectual stop to the excavating process. End of chapter 14, part 3